Welcome to Shift, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that uses memory-based adaptive learning technology to get you better results in less time. You can get a free trial by visiting achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Stephen Friedfeld from AcceptU with us, and Stephen, I'd love if you could just introduce yourself and your company. Sure. Thanks so much, Tyler. Um, I have been uh, in the admissions space for my entire career. After graduate school, I worked at Cornell University as an assistant dean of undergraduate admissions in the College of Arts and Sciences for four years. And then I shifted down to um, graduate admissions in the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Princeton University, where I was for six years. Uh, For four years, I was just an independent admissions consultant on my own uh, before I co-founded AcceptU. And we co-founded AcceptU in 2010. We're an admissions consulting firm. We've always been virtual, even long before the pandemic. So all of our consultants, our counselors who work at AcceptU are former admissions officers. There's about 25 of us. They live all over the U.S. in about 15 or so states, and it allows us to work with students from all over the world. We've had clients from about 35 or so countries and, and 40 states at this point. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, well, so now we, um, I think today, and you know, your uh, experience in all this admissions consulting for a very long time, uh, combined with sort of your seat as the founder of an admissions consulting firm, is going to be really helpful for what we're talking about today, which is really how it's kind of the title of the podcast, right? Like how the admissions landscape is shifting. And uh, the biggest thing, I mean, to me, it's kind of driven by two key changes. um, And those changes have beget lots of other changes. But um, I think we start with one and work our way to the other. The first key change is that the, um, you know, successful spread of the Common App which yeah. I believe is a private company um, that, you know, was their goal is to standardize college admissions applications. And I think that was a noble goal. Um, but the consequences of that have been interesting. And then the second is uh, test optional, right? And then sort of those two things thrown together uh, has led to a, a pretty dramatically different environment in a number of ways. So uh, I think first, maybe let's, uh, I think it makes sense to start maybe with the Common App stuff first. Or do you want to start by talking about like sort of what are the changes and kind of how do those two big factors play into them? I think it's I think it's a good idea to start with the common app because it's almost the chronology of the shift in admissions in the admissions landscape. It began with the common application. So I I don't purport to know the history of the common app very well. I've read it, I've seen it. Um, but from my understanding, it was maybe 10 or 15 schools initially in the, I want to say, 80s and even 90s. Um, but it wasn't until everything went um, uh, digital so that, mm-hmm. so that students were not applying on paper. And so when students were applying to universities um, using uh, web applications, or in this case, the common application, um, it allowed the students to submit more applications more readily, more easily without much added work. I mean, as an example, I graduated high school in 1991. Whenever I got an application, it was when I visited the actual university on campus. I picked up an application, a paper application, and brought it back to my house. So it was not so easy to apply <laughs> to too many universities because you had to get the, the application itself. 
In fact, if you didn't go and visit the university, you could call the university and then they would send you one in the mail. And that's another way to get an application. Um, as a side note, I didn't apply to a particular university for graduate school because I could never get the application. I never was, I kept calling and leaving a voicemail and they never sent me the application. So I just shrugged and never applied. <laughs> so, but the reality is everything went, went virtual, not necessarily virtual, but digital, um, you know, right. and so the, I don't know what the exact number is, but let's say there were a couple hundred schools probably by the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. Um, and now there are 900 plus universities that use the common application. When I worked at Cornell, I worked there in undergraduate admissions from 2000 to 2004. And we went on the common app. We joined the common app as a member while I was there. Mm -hmm. And we expected, and it was realized, a 10% or so increase in applications just by virtue of joining the common application. So I'm gonna make this number up, but we went from probably 20,000 applications to 22,000 applications without doing a thing other than joining that, that application. So uh, every university right. started realizing that it was a, a way to, like you said, democratize the process or allow people to apply to your university when they otherwise might not easily be able to get the physical application in their hands. So, uh, but as a consequence, when there's more applicants, the universities started realizing that they weren't changing the number of offers of admission. Instead, the denominator was growing, not the numerator. And so then they suddenly mm -hmm. had a lower admit rate. And when they had a lower admit rate, it felt and seemed, perhaps it was more prestigious or more, um, you know, more selective and more of a a high goal or aim for students and say, oh, well, I'd rather apply mm -hmm. to that university that only has a 20% a admit rate than a, that other university that has a 30 or 40% admit rate. I mean, those are the numbers from 20 plus years ago. Now we're talking numbers that are much lower. But, but um, yeah, there's this perceived prestige that comes along with a lower admit rate. And so the ease of applying certainly played into that. And, and I don't think I'm necessarily wrong when I say there were a few hundred application or universities that used the common application 20 plus years ago. And I, I know that, like I said, mm -hmm. it's over 900 now. Um, so I think it might be over a thousand now. I okay. It, perhaps they, it's even hit a thousand. That, yeah. 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 So um, it's uh, I, I, the common application in, you know, in many ways has really, it makes sense. I've always said, you know, I've had to explain for years and years, what is the common application and why is it useful? It makes sense. Your name doesn't change. Your high school name doesn't change. Your parents' back educational background doesn't change. Your course curriculum from nine through 12 doesn't change. Your extracurriculars are the same. So it's basically common information. So you lock in mm -hmm. that common information and you send it to the universities to which you apply. So the, the concept absolutely makes sense. And it does, un <laughs> unfortunately, ease the way in which, in which students apply to universities. The reason I say unfortunately is because they, and that's probably part two of this conversation, they're applying to so many more universities than, than I think they really should. Um, mm -hmm. We'll get into the details of that later, but, but the reality is the universities wanted to differentiate themselves, and so they'll have school-specific or university-specific supplemental essay questions um, it used to just be an essay question or two 
Sometimes there's many. Uh, we're talking three, four, five, six short answers or even more. Sometimes they'll have lists, you know, tell us your favorite magazines and books and art sites that you visit and what do you read daily and what's your favorite food and and so on and so forth. So we, we actually, as a company, we guide students through how to answer that. I mean, I can give a, a quick hint here is be yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, in, it's intimidating that the universities want to know all this information. The students don't know, should I admit what I really read as my books or what my favorite food is, or do I need to make it sound fancy? What are they looking for? So we, we provide a lot of right. insights in that because we've worked in admissions. We know what the universities, in fact, are looking for. So, yeah, well, and it's interesting. I mean, the funny thing about the common application is, you know, I'm sure that the initial idea, um, or at least I'm not, I mean, okay, I say I'm sure. <laughs> I imagine, because I don't know them or have any relationship with them, that the initial idea was just like you said, there's so much common information that people apply to schools with. Um, why is it not standardized, right? right and right. they, you know, built a nice company around that. But then the thing that's funny, and, and you hinted at this a little bit, is that like the sales, the, the what is the benefit to the university? The benefit to the university, sure, is like maybe it's a little easier for um, the students that are applying to their university, which like they generally like to do, like they're nice people. <laughs> um, but more importantly is that because it's a little bit easier to apply, you get more applications. And because you get more applications, your admittance rate, because you don't increase the school by yeah. how many people that apply, um, your admittance rate will go down. And then your admittance rate going down is like one of your key metrics, probably, um, sure. both for like the US News World Report and also just for prospective parents, regardless of the US News World Report. Um, yeah. So, you know, as an example, like I heard, I mean, to, just to give an example of how extreme it's kind of gotten, um, I've heard that like there are some universities that have gone from a forty percent admit rate to like six percent in the last like twenty years. And I mean, even you know my my parents' alma mater, um, USC, oh yeah, uh, they're excited. You know, as alumni, they're excited because the most people applied to USC this year that have ever applied. Oh yeah, it was ninety right? thousand. Just, just like so. yeah, yeah. So it just like feels good. And it's sure. something that, you know, as much as we all want to believe in sort of altruism, I think there were like business, the, the business case was, for lack of a better word, a little bit more cynical. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is that point of pride when you say, oh, our alma, my alma mater admitted only, you know, at USC, I believe it was 9% this year. You feel, you feel mm -hmm. good that it's so highly regarded and it's basically you know, an Ivy of the West Coast, you know, that that's what a lot of the alumni are not super upset necessarily of these rates until they have a high schooler at home who's applying to these institutions. To use your example mm -hmm. about a school that's gone from 40% to 6%. Um, yeah, actually, I, I cite several statistics quite often. One is almost not believable, but Northeastern University in Boston um, in, and I might get the year off by, by a year or two, but in 1993, I believe, 1993, mm -hmm. they had 10,600 applicants and they admitted 10,300 of them. So as a 97% admit rate last year and this year, it was about six to 7% admit rate at, at Northeastern University. So they, they wow. now have something like 90,000 or perhaps it hit 100,000 applicants. And they're, you know, 
still only admitting around eight, nine, 10,000 students. They didn't really change the number of students, but they sure did increase. And I mean, the number of students, you know, who apply, uh, or rather among those students who apply, the university now has its pick. They could take the students with the best SATs or ACTs or impressive resumes. Um, and, and I have a friend actually whose daughter attended there over in Ivy because at Northeastern, she was given a, a free ride and a Dean's scholarship. And hey, she mm -hmm. did incredibly well there and went to Harvard Business School thereafter. So you can, you know, you can go to any university and do incredibly well. And then all of the doors will open thereafter. Um, and, and I mean, that is proof positive that, you know, the universities, it was smart of Northeastern to use its endowment. I assume that's what it was doing is using its funds or its endowment to, to woo students from Ivy's, Ivy Plus, let's say, to its own institution. And that really can help elevate its profile, its um, SAT or ACT average. Um, it gets other students excited to say, oh, if so-and-so went there, uh, then, then that must be a great university. Um, mm -hmm. When I started in admissions consulting as uh, just a, an independent before co-founding Accept You, <clears throat> um, I'd have students who would look at Ivy or what we might call Ivy Plus institutions, and those would be really the schools that they were aiming for, appropriately so. And they would typically have University of Chicago and Vanderbilt University on their lists as well. And they were more predictable in admissions. And I still remember in 06, when I was an independent consultant, I, I mean, I might be wrong slightly, but in 06, the admit rate for Vanderbilt was about 40 or 41 or so percent. And then for the past um, few years, it's, I'm sure, six, seven percent, something along those lines. Same thing with University of Chicago. I, I distinctly remember 15, 16, 17 years ago, it was about 35% admit rate in University of Chicago has hovered around five or 6% for the last few years. I, I remember seeing mm -hmm. that shift, especially with Vanderbilt, because like I said, I started in independent admissions consulting in 06. And I remember it was around a 40% admit rate. And then about five years later, so it must've been in 2012, I remember it really had drastically dropped to something like 12, 13, 14% admit rate. I thought there was a typo when I was looking through the data and trying to advise and guide and counsel students. And, and sure enough, um, it, it was not a typo. <laughs> it became a hot school. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like some of this is that the school's, you know, doing the right things and are like improving their profile. And then some of this also is just like the way that the quote unquote game has changed. Totally. Um, because the other interesting fact in all of this is that, um, you know, between 1993 and today, there was the millennials. And the millennials are the largest generation, basically since the baby boomers, but certainly the largest generation kind of in the last 50 years in any Western country. Um, and now, you know, with Gen Z, and frankly, I don't actually even know what comes after Gen Z. Like Omega. Back, like Maybe it's Omega. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, God. I hope it's not. Um, <laughs> I'm but, making that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, these generations are a good bit smaller than the mm -hmm. millennials. So there's the, the school, the class size is the same. The numerator is the same. The number of people is actually going down, but the number of applications is dramatically increased. Right. And I mean, this is something yeah. we talked about in our prep call um, is you're seeing a very different approach to applications now than you used to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're um, we see. So 
as a company, we work with students in their contract. We work with them on up to 10 applications. And, um, and for the last few years, that we, used to feel like a lot, I bet. They used to feel like, oh, I still like think maybe there'd be like six I for think, a lot of people and like 10 to, would be high. I think six to 10 is the ideal number. I would love it to be six. Um, yeah, so t- I agree. 10 used to feel like a lot. We, we'd get some pushback, but not a lot. But we would allow students to work with us on up to 10 applications. And then for an additional fee, we would say, sure, we can work with you on an 11th or 12th or 13th application and so forth. And the reason we had that fee is, number one, it was more work for us and our counselors. And number two, it was really to be a deterrent so that the students mm-hmm. um, were saying, OK, you know what? Ten university applications is, in fact, enough. I mean, the students are are learning the game and they're they're work, finding workarounds. Um, so we've actually even changed our contract a few months ago where we won't even work with students after their 10th application. It's not to say that students can't and won't and don't apply to an 11th or 12th or 20th university. They do. It's just that we're not working with them on those additional applications. We feel that, you know, if we've worked with you on your applications for the first 10, you have a common mm-hmm. application completed. You have a great common app essay. You you know how to write your supplemental essays. Take that, you know, work that we've done and then apply it if you'd like, but you really shouldn't. It's so much time, energy, extra effort, money to apply to more universities and students are throwing more darts at the dartboard and hoping that something sticks or assuming something will stick. And I honestly would say nine times out of 10, it could even be something like 99 times out of a hundred. It just doesn't work. Almost always. It just leads to more rejection letters. It is very, very rare where a student will get more acceptance letters by applying to more um, universities. And of course, some people will listen mm-hmm. to this and say, well, I think I could be that one out of a hundred or that one out of 10, whatever the number is. And I mean, so then people, it, I guess it's like uh, playing the slots or something. People think, well, I, I, someone's got to win. Maybe it'll be me. So they keep playing. But honestly, um, and so the reason that applying to more universities leads to more rejections is because, um, you know, when you add an 11th or 12th or 15th or 20th university to which you're applying, it's not going to be, I don't want to insult any universities, but it's not going to be an easy to get into university. You're not going to say, well, I'll make my mm. my additional 10 universities, those schools with an 80% admit rate or a 60 or 50% admit rate. No, they're going for those that have a, a 15 or lower percent admit rate. So that's it, you know, as one of my counselors like to say likes to say, it's not like buying a raffle ticket. It's not like you're entering a raffle and you buy more tickets and thus there's more chances that your ticket is drawn at the end of the night. Um, it just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. So, so you know, a, another a reality that I like to say to parents or students when they, they are not convinced that 10 is more than sufficient <laughs> applications, um, they'll say, well, um, you know, it's fine. We we don't mind the extra work or the extra effort or the extra money to apply to those additional universities. So those universities are having so many more applications and thus their admit rates are going down and down. So it's this sort of terrible self-fulfilling prophecy. But the other reality is I like to say, look, a 17-year-old cannot accept or, or deal with so many rejection letters. And so I like to put hard numbers on this and say, look, If you apply to 20 universities and you get into, say, six universities, 
how do you feel? And the student or parent without thinking will likely say, that's great. I got into six universities. And I say, that is great. But you're forgetting the fact that you just got rejected from 14 universities. I mean, we almost want to put that in red ink, reject, 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 like write it down 14 times. And when I put it in those words, they think, yeah, many people think, yeah, that's that's not a, a fun look. You, you almost don't celebrate the six acceptances and you focus for the rest of your life on those 14 rejections. And, and many parents will resist and say, my, my, my son or my daughter, she can handle it. He can handle it. And until it hits home and until it's in their actual dining room table every night when they're eating dinner, it's, it, it, they cannot. <laughs> they, they actually can't handle that rejection. Um, and they shouldn't. And they shouldn't have to. And I don't I mean, it's not like we're trying to coddle students too much and to, you know, you know, baby them. But the reality is you can at most have only 10 rejections if you apply to 10 universities. But if you're applying to a really smart, balanced list of 10 universities, you should have two likely schools, two, three, four, five matches. And you might get into, you might not get into matches and then a few reaches or far reaches. So I think that balance is really key. Um, I, we had a, a student this year who applied to 10 schools, listened to us, got one rejection, three wait lists, and four acceptance, uh, sorry, six acceptances, and is thrilled with, with the choices. Um, right. Very rarely do we see students who listen to us and apply to, to 10, school, 10, 10 universities because the workaround is as follows. You know, we say, well, with our company, we only really want you to work on 10 applications. But the funny thing is, well, the University of California is one application. And they can apply to up to eight campuses within, I think it's eight, eight campuses with that one application. So right now, that's already eight plus nine. That's 17 uh, universities that they apply to when they when they try and trick the system. Um, and we say, but sure. are you interested in all of those UCs or just one or two or three of them? You know, I mean, so we have a lot of those. I don't know if I should call them philosophical conversations, but we have honest conversations with students about what do you really want? What's your goal? Why do you want to apply to so many schools? If you're never interested in ever attending, even if admitted, I don't understand why applying because someone who's applying to that university is genuinely interested and wants to go there. And if you don't, you're and you get in, you take that space away from someone else. So we have those kinds of conversations with students as well. But I know yeah, we wanted to talk I mean, about, oh, go on. I have a few other reasons well, why the landscape is shifting, but, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to unpack this one, uh, this part, last thing you just said a little bit more. Um, I mean, just a couple of things. Like, first and foremost yeah. is that you can only go to one. Yeah. Right? Isn't that So, funny? like, even even getting into six or even getting into three is Doesn't kind mean. of plenty, right? Like, in a so, way. I mean, yeah. It, it and frankly, even if you only get into one, I mean, I applied early to one and I got it and I went and that was right. it. But like, yeah, yeah. I think that um, you know, you you basically only need to get into one. And I uh, I agree with you that um, I feel like what happens is a lot of these students are just kind of applying to you know the IV plus schools and maybe a couple of lower name sure. brand schools, sure. just sure. like just to kind of throw the dart at the board. Yeah, but they're not yep. picking you know, six out of a hundred people, they're picking the best six out of a hundred people. Yeah. And those are people that, you know, if you're working with an admissions advisor are the people that, are, you know, they'll tell you realistically, like what your chances are of being in that group. And so it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very tough, like 
it, it to me it's it's kind of like you, they're kind of doing it because they want to like hold on to the dream that they'll go to Harvard or whatever. Yeah. A little bit and I mean you still could apply and that could be your big reach, but it's you know applying to six Harvards because yeah. you think maybe I'll I'll you know with a I'll have a better sh- shot of getting into one. That's not actually how it really works. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot for me to unpack now <laughs> with that. I mean, everything yeah. you said is absolutely correct. Um, I, I just think of one student whom we worked with last year who applied to around 20, despite our best efforts not to have him apply to 20, and was admitted to a public Ivy, as it's called, and then another public, I think the other one is called public Ivy, and then got waitlisted from what we would call an Ivy Plus, and then got in off the waitlist. And the, and it was a disappointment because they think, and, and this is the reason, you know, so getting into two universities in the top 25, instead of, let's say, 12 universities of the top 25, or however many he had hoped to get into, the reality is the parents kept saying he just didn't have choice. We wanted him to have choice. And so that, you know, it means something to me. I, we, we, I, my colleagues and I do listen to our, our, our parents and our students when we, when the results come in. And that's a huge difference from 10, 15 years ago when I was doing independent consulting um, in 06 through 2010, or even at Accept You from 2010 to let's say 2018 or so, we would see students getting into several top universities and that was quote unquote having choice um this year we had a student who's from michigan get into michigan dartmouth and brown amazing schools i think he got into one or two other top 25s um but didn't get into another let's say eight or so top 25 top 10 schools um and is very happy with those results who wouldn't be those are incredible but honestly the profile of the student was so strong that in uh five 10 years ago would have likely gotten into, I would say, all of those schools, if not almost all of those schools. So um, yeah, that's one certain shift of the landscape is, is, you know, we as a company, we're really proud that this year, we, our students did get into pretty much all of the top 25, top 50 universities. You know, I, I, I take the rankings with a grain of salt, but our students did get into mm-hmm. almost all of those, if not all of those. Um, but we saw many fewer. So let's say in a previous year, we had 20. I think two years ago, we had 20 who got into Cornell. This year, it was 12 or 14, something like that. So we, we're, our students were still doing very well, but it was not quite the numbers. Um, maybe last year, our students, I think eight or so got into Penn, and this year it was five. So that So we are still seeing some great results, but we're not seeing as many great results per student. In, in any case, it's it's really, you know, I think it's um, just this very morning we heard from a parent who said, I am not sure that a service like this is even needed for my my daughter. When I was in high school applying to college, I didn't use a service like this. And and I got into some great schools. I'm sure she will, too. And And I hope that is the case. But the reality is, I mean, I hear that almost daily from parents. And I think, well, 25 to 30 years ago was completely different from today, um, you know, to get mm-hmm. into top universities. If you wanted to be a chemistry major 30 years ago, you made sure you took AP chemistry and AP calculus if your 
high school offered it. These days, if you want to be a chemistry major and you apply to universities, you take those courses I just mentioned, plus many other advanced placement type courses. And then you do a summer or two of research um, <laughs> in the chemistry right. field or biochemistry field. And and maybe you founded the chemistry club and probably two other things. So there's a, there's a lot of a lot of differences, but um, you know, other other changes and other shifts have occurred because of um, strategies, early action, and early decision. That's something that mm -hmm. that I I failed to mention earlier, but I think is a really important part of this puzzle, which is you know there aren't just so many more applicants to universities, but the universities are taking such a high percentage of their applicants in early decision, locking in those freshmen. And then there are mm -hmm. so few spaces for regular decision that to get in is almost, um, it, it's almost under, always under one, two, three, four percent for, for some universities. And so, you know, right, the yield schools, yeah. looks very high, their admit rate looks very low. Um, that perceived, perceived well it's all it's yeah. all about metrics right i mean and unfortunately metrics, yeah. this is kind of the other piece of this whole thing is the u.s news rankings which originally started i'm sure is a completely like again kind of altruistic thing where it's like let's rank the colleges yeah. have become this like scoreboard that frankly yeah. i think is like factored into not only the reputation of schools, but probably the compensation of the people that work at them. I mean, I I'm think certain. that it's possible in some places. And so you've oh, yeah. got, you know, for, for instance, you just mentioned the yield rate for people that don't know. That's when you give an acceptance to somebody and they actually show up, right? So if you're yes. Stanford or whatever, then most likely your yield rate's very high, probably over 70 or 80%. Because they're at the top and if you you know if someone if you get into stanford you want to go and then yeah. you accept yeah. and so it is you know in a vacuum a great metric of like how desirable the school is sure. the problem though is like you said like you know these metrics are starting to get kind of gamed by people and one of the ways to do that is early decision means that they have to go so right. you're going to have 100 percent yield rate from this batch correct so the larger you make that batch the higher your yield rate is, right? It'll sure. be pulled up, like, statistically. Yeah. Admissions deans and directors really don't like uncertainty, and they want to minimize that uncertainty. And you can minimize uncertainty by locking in a very high percentage of your freshman class, even in the early 2000, 2001. I worked at Cornell University. A friend of mine was working at uh, Columbia University. And I remember he was saying that they took 49.5% of their freshman class in early decision. And I, I, you know, was mocking him. And I said, well, that, I can't believe you're taking half your class in early decision. You're not, back then that was unheard of. You're not leaving any room for students to apply to regular decision. And at Cornell, we were in the low 30s, low to mid 30s. I think that has, I'm certain that has risen. Um, and he said, mm -hmm. well, we're not taking half our class. I still remember this conversation. We're not taking half our class in early decision. It's 49.5%. <laughs> and so, you know, but if, if Columbia is looking for, I want to say they're looking for a freshman class of say 1600 or so, I could be wrong. Then, um, you know, you take 800 in, in early decision, 800 out of it used to probably be out of 2,000, 3,000 applicants in early decision, then they'd probably have 25 to 35,000 in regular decision. That means that they were probably taking another, say, 1,600 <clears throat> or maybe maybe 2,000 out of the remaining 30,000 in regular decision to try and yield that additional 800. 
Um, Penn, someone went from Columbia to Penn that the dean did, and Penn then started mm -hmm. doing that too. And if you look at Penn's um, numbers over the years in their U.S. News ranking, I I remember um, in the late '80s, early '90s, Penn I believe was a 38% admit rate. Um, and now they're probably four or five percent admit rate. They've been probably four, five, six, seven, eight percent over the last five to ten years at this point. But Penn um, right. followed Columbia's lead, which is admitting such a high percentage in early decision. So so many schools are doing that now. Tulane um, is doing that. Um, I believe Vanderbilt admits. I mean, I, I shouldn't pick on any particular universities. We can look up the data, but such a high percentage of these top 25, top 50 universities are taking a very large percentage of their class in, in early decision. They're locking them in. And so, um, admittedly, that is a shift in our counseling. Our counseling has really shifted. Right. Well, and it's also funny because... Um... It, it's it like the, you know, oh, we should get on the Common App so we get more applications. Well, oh, they got on the Common App and got more applications, so we need to get on the Common yeah. App and get more applications. Totally. The same dynamic is at play with the early decision factor, right? Totally. Where it's like, oh, they're doing this, and their um, yield rate is super high, and that's the metric that, you know, my boss is like, hey, why the heck is their yield rate so much better than ours? Um, now that is needs to be basically like what you do in order to compete right yeah. so it's this kind of and then it, the other part of this is so funny to me in a way um is that early decision you're you get one choice I'm, i mean i i guess you could do multiple but i think it's kind of unethical and i think also like you're contractually obligated to go right yeah yeah um but if you do early decision you only are picking one place and it's like much more likely that you'll get in yes so it's you're and then you have 14 other applications that are much less likely to get in Correct. so all these people so it's like they're increasing the number of applications that they're doing but in reality there's kind of only one that really matters or that yeah. one that is really their best shot right like it's a really yeah. it's really funny how that's that's split the, the irony yeah so we i mean so a very high percentage i'll admit of our students whom we work with um apply early decision or early action or both to, to universities um well we would be unwise not to advise students to apply early decision if there is a top school that surfaces for them as their their top choice that they will enroll if admitted. I mean, I don't like to advise anyone to apply early decision if they haven't visited the university in person um, or done a lot of research into that university. But the other reality is we also want there to be some chance that the student has of getting in. While it's true that early decision admit rates are higher than regular decision admit rates for a whole host of reasons, it doesn't mean that it's mm -hmm. easy to get in by any means. So we still want students to apply only if there is, you know, if it's, uh, I would say, within reach. And I always think of universities, some universities are just out of reach, no matter early decision or otherwise. And if that's the case, I would never advise a student to apply early decision. I mean, as a company, we don't actually have that many students applying each year to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, and similar schools, because we're advising students to apply to schools where they are going to have any chance. And very few students mm -hmm. have a legitimate chance at those institutions I just mentioned. In fact, that's why those schools' admit rates are so low. It's because 
students apply there and when they have no shot, when they have no chance. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I even remember, so I graduated high school in 91 and, um, and I, I was first in my class, but I remember out of a, about 275 or so students, but I remember someone in my class who was ranked 90th or so. And I, I, I remember he applied to Yale University. I grew up outside of New Haven. And I, I remember asking him, why are you applying there? He goes, just to say I applied. <laughs> so that I think that mindsets, I know for a fact that mindset still exists today where people say, oh, I want to apply to a unit just to say I applied. And I think to myself, well, anyone can apply. It just takes about 75 or so dollars. Like it's not, there's no bragging rights with applying to a university. There's bragging rights maybe with getting admitted. So um, I do think that people mm-hmm. are really saying, well, I just want to see what happens. And and actually that's a good segue for us probably to talk about test optional because that right. really accelerated that mindset. Well, let's see what happens. I have everything I think is pretty good on my application except for my standardized exams. So suddenly, you know, the universities went test optional with COVID uh, three years ago. And, and then students would say, I never would have had a shot at university X or Y or Z, but okay, maybe I do now have a chance. And so, you know, a school like Cornell went from 50,000 to 66,000 applications in one year, and now it's over 70,000. And uh, I, I'm probably going to get the numbers wrong, but I want to say I think Columbia went from 40,000 to 60,000, and Harvard went from probably 45 or 50,000 to similar to Cornell, 70,000, and so forth. They did not increase their size of their freshman class. They did not build new dorms mm-hmm. to accommodate, you know, thousands more students or or increase their faculty to have faculty advising uh, as a priority and so forth. I mean, there are some efforts at some universities to increase the size of the institution, which is fantastic. I know Rice University is adding uh, a, a more sizable freshman class. Princeton, when I worked there, they were, it was a five-year phase though to increase the dorm space to increase their freshman class, but it's it's not keeping up with the volume of applications by any means. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so, so this has really accelerated this downward shift in admit rates when schools went test optional. MIT, as you know, interestingly enough, after three, two, three years, went back to saying we are going to require the standardized test. <laughs> but not mm-hmm. too many, not too many other institutions have yet followed suit. Well, yeah, it's an interesting thing because um, on the one hand, if you're a student that would never get into Harvard, <laughs> why do you think that applying without your test scores is going to improve your chances, right? Like that's kind of, that's always been my point of view on it is like the, the test scores are meant to be a check mark in the sure. box of like, can they hang here academically? And so if you can't, or if it's not obvious that you can from your transcript, well, then at least it can be obvious from your test scores. So you're taking that away. On the other hand, if you want to admit someone, but their test scores are low, you know that your test score average is going to take a hit, again, sure. going to that metrics-based approach. And so maybe you would be more likely to admit somebody well, who doesn't hit those test scores. It's an well, interesting I, dilemma. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I have a perfect example. When I worked at Cornell, I, I remember recruiting, this is back in the day when you used to travel to lots and lots of different high schools and regions and states and countries and counties and I mean, they do travel, but not nearly as much anymore. But it, I remember going to New York City um, to several inner city high schools in Manhattan and other uh, boroughs. <clears throat> and I remember chatting with the um, the school counselors and they would send Cornell, um, you know, because Cornell and Columbia are the two 
New York State Ivies. They would send us their best mm -hmm. students. So it would be the best student at, I'll be honest, at a very weak high school. And that student would mm -hmm. have A's and A pluses and, and as rigorous a curriculum as possible. But it wasn't that rigorous compared to some other you know, fancy high schools. There weren't advanced placement or IB type courses. But that student was the best coming out of that high school. And that student's test mm -hmm. score, those students, plural, test scores were not very strong. I mean, we're, we're hundreds of points below Cornell's average, but we would take them. And so now mm -hmm. those students feel a lot more confident, like, yeah, I'm the best coming out of my high school. I have all A's. And instead of having an 1100 SAT, well, I do still have an 1100 SAT, but you know, the university average is 14 or 1500 or whatever the average is. Well, they're not going to see that my standardized test, I'm just not a good test taker or, or I didn't have test prep, which is often the case. Or um, right. I didn't even you know, know that I could buy a $20 test prep book um, and so forth. So, so yeah, I could understand why students feel there's now a chance or more confidence in applying to um, a university where the average SAT is 1450 or 1500 or 1520 or something like that. Um, you know, maybe they were really great within their school community with leadership and with extracurriculars and with giving back to others. And they'll have fantastic letters of recommendation. I mean, so so I was not surprised. In, in fact, when I worked at Cornell, no one at Cornell would ever remember this if you even pressed them on it. But I, when I worked there for those four years, I remember uh, on one committee suggesting that we go test optional for various reasons. And um, I think it was lightly discussed and then quickly and summarily dismissed. <laughs> but I just mm -hmm. thought, well, that could be a way for us to attract more students, to democratize um, the, the uh, application process. And also, to be quite frank, we were honestly ignoring the SATs for those types of students whom I just mentioned, the inner city students who are great students who work really hard, who are the best of the best in maybe not a very good or strong high school. I thought, well, why don't we just have them apply without standardized test scores, which are lowering our, we were admitting them with their 1100, but they were lowering our average. <laughs> and I kept saying, mm -hmm. well, only those students with the best test scores and who feel very confident would apply and it would increase our average and so forth. But all of that was, like I said, summarily dismissed. Only University of Chicago was the, the first super highly selective institution in, I want to say 2018 or so, that um, that really um, made testing optional before the pandemic. Wake Forest University was was really actually the first one, but I wouldn't call them super highly selective. Um, but Wake was very selective, very highly selective, you know, probably in, I'm making this up, 2013, 14, 15 or something. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, George Washington and I want to say NYU has been very, uh, not lax with their standardized testing, but more open-minded with their standardized test policies, maybe Rochester. But those were the, the few um, research universities that were test optional. The liberal arts and sciences colleges, many even of the top 25 had been test optional for a while. Um, but the research universities, it took a long, it took the pandemic really to to get those schools on board. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, and that's why I think it's probably not going away. I mean, I think that it's a convenient tool yeah. um, when universities want to do certain things like what you described. I do think that, I mean, I'm, I work for a test prep company, but I do think <laughs> that the having the test score and having it be in the range is still better than not having it like, I, by a fair amount. So you'll like what I say. 
I always tell students and parents, I don't think it's test optional. I think it's submission optional, meaning you really need to study for and take the exam. And then you do what you want with the exam after you've studied hard and after you've taken the exam, you might submit it, you might not submit it. And we have a lot of strategy conversations with our students. We've had a lot of strategy conversations with our students the last three years where they, you know, might submit their, they do submit their score to some of the universities on their list, and then they withhold them from other universities. Um, It's rare to see a student, I I can't even think of a single student that we've worked with over the past three years who has not ever taken any standardized exam. So they all take them, but but Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily submit them. I think that um, the universities must be very overwhelmed with their volume of applications. And so uh, I actually am almost surprised that they're not going back to requiring standardized exams to maybe temper the enthusiasm, if you will, to to maybe lower their number of, of applications. But maybe it's an ego stroke. Maybe they don't want to go from you know seventy thousand applications back down to the the quote normal fifty thousand applications, I don't know, but uh, I mean MIT won't suffer, and they know that, and um, and so MIT was okay to go back to requiring standardized exams. But um, I, I do wonder how, or rather, I wonder if all the applications are being read, and assuming that they are, but the volume is so high, assuming all applications are being read, how quickly are they being read? I mean, we used to always read mm-hmm. applications fairly quickly, especially if we could do a cursory uh, view and find out, yeah, the grades aren't there, the standardized testing isn't there. We still read the application in full, but admittedly, we would say, well, we read some applications faster than others. Um, mm-hmm. I, I talked to someone at an IV about two years ago, and um, she actually left the IV admissions. She she was looking for <clears throat> an admissions consulting position. She ended up not working with us, but um, she, she went to a different firm and she said she couldn't even get to all of the applications. Um, she said that the workload had increased so tremendously, but the support had not um, and her pay had not. Right. And so I think it's taking a toll on admissions officers. So I, I don't know. I don't work any longer, of course, at a university. So I don't know if those kinds of conversations are happening within the admissions offices. I imagine they must be. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot there's a lot for them to deal with at this point. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think that it will be I think that I could see a, a, a backlash to test optional occurring before a backlash to the common app. But I think oh, the test optional just there's a there's a much stronger case to be made for like look like it as much as you know nobody likes taking standardized tests necessarily um the data is really important for us to be able to understand if you can you know work with the curriculum that we have here right and and I, I think that yeah. was their whole argument they were like this is a very hard math school <laughs> it always will <laughs> to be, say the least right? yeah. Yeah. yeah to say the least it might be one of you know it's probably top three hardest in the country and so we need to know if you can be here and i think the other thing too is there are a lot of schools that are doing you know studies of internal metrics for um the people that they're admitting test optional or not and that'll inform also a lot of those decisions yeah, um, I mean, so we'll see. I, I actually think that the universities should go back to requiring standardized exams, or or many of them should. 
Um, I do think there is some value in that. The University of California system is now test blind, as you know. So they're saying, um, well, we're, we won't look at um, any ACT, SAT, I believe even AP exams, IB exams. That's actually hurt some of our students over the last couple of years. Quite, uh, it's mm-hmm. taken a, an opposite effect because we've had some students who are really excellent students and superstars when it comes to taking standardized exams, but those universities aren't even seeing their, their fantastic testing to know that, yeah, they do have not just a basic level of um, math and science and, and evidence-based reading and writing, but, but in a super advanced, impressive level. Um, and it's not, mm-hmm. it, it, so, so it's funny that it's taking the opposite effect, having the opposite effect on some of our, our students that we've seen. Right. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, all of these policies are kind of leading people to uh, be able to admit who they want to admit, which sure. varies on the, by the organization based on their goals. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's all kind of coming down to flexibility and unfortunately a lot, it seems to me like a good amount of that flexibility isn't really about academics. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting true. to see kind of, kind of where that goes. Right. Um, yeah. I guess as we wrap up here, we're kind of, we're, we've, this is now a mega episode officially. Um, and, and I, I feel like we've talked about a lot of trends, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of make sure we touched on before um, we conclude on just like how the admissions landscape is shifting? And maybe this would be the point to talk about, like, what are your recommendations for parents? Sure. Actually, I was about to mention parents. Um, and, and I mentioned this example earlier. I think that parents really need to understand how different admissions selectivity is from uh, 25 to 30 years ago when they were in high school compared to today um, with regard to the extracurricular profile, with regard to the, um, the, the standardized testing policies, with regard to expectations of the, um, of the universities, with regard to preparedness. Um, I mean, I, I just even remember talking to my brother last year, his daughter is a freshman, finishing up freshman, um, year of high school. And he, I think he probably graduated high school with one AP class. Uh, I graduated high school with two AP classes. There were just were so few offered by, by, by our high school 30 plus years ago. And his daughter has already mm-hmm. signed up to take two APs in 10th grade. And he said, wow, that's different. We didn't take that in 10th grade or 11th grade or, or even in 12th grade. And I said, oh yeah, right. to me, it's almost common. It is not almost, it is commonplace for, for strong students to, you know, he said, is that re- replacing what we took as honors courses? And I, I said, maybe to an extent, it's almost like a, a dock that's floating. You know, if it's a floating dock and the water rises, the students rise with it or their curriculum rises with it and so forth. So they, they just want to make sure that they're taking a very challenging curriculum as compared to the other students within their context, within their high school or their town or their city, their county and so forth. Um, the other reality, I mentioned this earlier, is with regard to, um, with well, I alluded to this with regard to majors. It's okay not to know what you want to study in college. In fact, I hate even asking a, t- a ninth or 10th or 11th grader, what do you want to major in? I'm okay with asking a senior that, but it's okay for them not to know. Admittedly, the liberal arts and sciences colleges tend to be much more amenable to students who, to applicants who are not necessarily sure of what they want to study. In fact, we as mm-hmm. a company are always promoting liberal arts and sciences colleges. We wish more students would look at those institutions. Um, The research universities tend to be 
quote unquote, less forgiving for undecided applicants if they're a highly selective or very selective. So, so it is good for students. They don't need to know their major, but it's good to have an idea of what your major or two or three majors might look like for you. And then having some alignment with your extracurricular activities or your leadership or your summers, right. um, having some alignment with your, your majors, that is really different from 20, 30 years ago, certainly. So that, that's some advice that I think is um, a real shift in the admissions landscape from, from then until today. Yeah, I, I mean, it's advice I've heard a few other times on this podcast, but it's it's literally like your kid almost needs to have figured out what they yeah. want their career to be in ninth grade so that they have, you know, the summers between freshman and sophomore, sophomore and junior yeah. and junior and senior year to go do relevant internships sure. or go to relevant summer programs or to, you know, start a club in their school or to be, be, you know, join and become president of the club in their school or go to competitions. And this is all, I mean, maybe to me, the key biggest shift in all of this is this is all way above and beyond like A++++ extra credit stuff. When I was applying to college in 2010, or no, I think it was 2006. 2006. It was not, it was not that long ago that you could apply to college with good grades and good SAT and that was it. Like you didn't right. need to suddenly be, you know, there's a, a somebody that I worked with as an intern who, you know, she was part of our internship program because she was trying to build up a resume Yeah, and she had written and published a book from like an actual publisher. Right. And I was just like, I've never published a book I'm in my thirties. <laughs> like this is right. It, it's, it, it's so it's become such a rat race. I know. And the rat race is motivated by and driven by, I think all the other stuff we talked about, right. Where it's like, Oh, well, you know, the admittance rate is so low now. Like I've got to do everything I can to get in. And, um, I just think that that's, well, I don't want to say it's like bad for students, but I just don't feel like students. Get I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy. Well, t- two comments. One is when you were applying to high school, that was my first year as an independent consultant, and so you are mm-hmm. the age of the student that I the first the first crop of students I worked with graduated with you seventeen or so years ago, and yeah, it was like you said, let's get great grades and work hard on your standardized testing and have some good extracurriculars and apply to a balanced list and and up to ten universities and that was a lot um so that that mm-hmm. is certainly different, but um you know i i I agree mental health issues are certainly a concern for students, for parents, for educators. It's a concern that we at my company have. That is certainly, um, we probably had three or four students over the past 12 months drop out of our program working with Accept You because they needed to take a, a year off or a gap year and so forth. And and we were certainly, of course, very understanding of that and supportive of the parent and the student, but I had never seen that before. And our company has been around for 13 years. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I like for students to take a step back and and do the things they want to do. Um, I, I read a New York Times article probably about two months ago where I like reading the comments sections of the Times uh, often. And so it was on admissions. Um, oh, it actually was related to the um, the Supreme Court case with Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And and one comment said, "Oh, those students who." Um, you know, went to Europe and didn't take extra AP exams or uh, didn't do extra academics during the summer. They're the ones who are getting into 
colleges. And I thought, yeah, I can see that if I were in admissions, as I used to be, I find it actually appealing for a student to learn a new language or culture or travel or meet new people. I'd almost rather see that than someone who takes three extra AP courses on his own over the summer. So, you know, I think parents Mm -hmm. might have the wrong idea about what is appealing to an admissions officers are humans and they're looking to bring into their freshman class, um, people who are interesting and who will contribute meaningfully to the university community. And someone who took three extra APs on his own over the summer isn't exactly someone that I'd want to go to lunch with, but someone who who traveled on his own for two months in Europe last summer, I'd probably want to have lunch with that guy. So think about right. it that way. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Well, thank you so much. This is a My great pleasure. episode and I feel like we covered a ton of trending topics. Um, This is Ben Shift. It's a college admissions podcast for a changing world and hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Stephen Friedfeld from Accept You. And Achievable has a great ACT course that you can get a free trial of by just going to achievable.me. And if you like it, use the code podcast to get 10% off.